Well, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to be here tonight. I've uh, actually been in this building several times, but I don't believe I've been here for a service before. And so I count it a great privilege to be here and to meet a number of you. I've I met a few of you before the service and look forward to uh, meeting others of you after the service. I've known your pastor, I think, for about 12 years. Um, I think you guys were married about 12 years ago this summer. Is that right? And I think that's about the time we first met. Um, my wife, a uh, little-known fact here, my wife actually was roommates with Jen for a couple of years in the late 90s, and so there are probably stories to be told and all that, but I did not ask for any. Uh, you, can, you can pursue that later if you wish. Um, I have to admit that when I first heard that Pastor Elwert, or Brother Elwert at that point, was called to ambassador, uh, I kind of responded with mixed emotions. Um, I was excited for him, the opportunity to come, uh, just finishing up seminary, to come here and to uh, begin ministry. I was excited for this church. Um, I believe you, you got a great man with a, a, a great family, and I think that's just, uh, it's been a wonderful fit from all I've heard. And yet I was somewhat torn in that we were in the same ABF, a small group Bible study, uh, together on Sunday mornings. And uh, so we knew we'd be losing them. And uh, even my kids, uh, uh, we told them they'd be moving a little further away. And, and uh, so we were torn. And yet uh, it's good to be here and to see the work here. I was, uh, I was looking at your church's website, which is beautiful, by the way. I don't know who put that together, but it's, it's wonderful. And I noticed that the church was started in 1939. Um, kids, that's about the time your grandparents were probably young. Um, back, uh, I guess, about 60, 70 years, ago, 70 years ago, roughly. And I noticed that the church was started in the home of a man named Luther and that the first pastor's name was Calvin. And I must tell you, as uh, Pastor Elbert mentioned, that I teach church history. It's a little bit intimidating and unusual for a guy to, uh, to speak in a church that was planted by Calvin and Luther. And no kids, that's not uh, Calvin and Luther from back uh, hundreds of years ago. This was Calvin and Luther. Uh, Thomas Luther, I believe, and then uh, Pastor Calvin, whose name I don't know. Maybe perhaps some of you do, uh, his first name. Anyway, as uh, Pastor Elwert mentioned and, and I, I allude to, I do teach church history at uh, DBTS. And I often find it interesting as I meet people and begin to talk to them about what I do, uh, that many people really don't understand what church history is. And um, they'll ask me questions, and um, perhaps they... Uh, remember taking history in high school and think of it as something where you memorize a lot of dates and names and you study for that quiz on Friday and so you try to cram all that information into your head and they really find it kind of boring. And so they think church history, well, that must be something that's really quite boring. And I'm probably a little biased on this, but I actually think that's the furthest thing from the truth. What I tell my students is the best thing about my job is that I get to tell stories and talk theology. Basically, I get to talk about the central truths of the scriptures and talk about how they played out in, uh, over the last 2,000 years, how God has been at work in different places, different times, and been working around the world. And so church history actually is something that's very interesting and obviously very near to me. I was once uh, talking to somebody about some of the classes that I teach, and I mentioned I teach a class on early church history, and they asked me, so um, is that like the Puritans, or who, what are we talking about here? Uh, and so that... That and some other conversations, it's not, uh, by the way, early church history, has largely to do with the people who lived in the first few centuries after the apostles died, Puritans much closer to us. Uh, but uh, it, it caused me to begin thinking, 
that uh, many people suffer from a sort of historical amnesia or perhaps just a lack of familiarity with the past. Um, many Christians are, could name off uh, most of the apostles, um, probably know that John was likely the last apostle to die in the 90s, at the end of the first century. And they remember perhaps their grandparents or um, you know, the early founders of this church. Uh, as believers, and they really don't know what happened between the time when the Apostle John died and the 20th century, or perhaps for younger people, the 21st century even. And I'd like to do something about that tonight just a little bit. Um, I'm not going to try to give any kind of survey of church history that's just way, uh, takes three three or four classes at uh, DBTS to try to walk through church history, and I always feel like I'm leaving stuff out. Um, but I would like to challenge you this evening with the idea that God has been working between the, between the time when the apostles passed off the scene and the 21st century. God has been at work in many different times and places, preserving his word, preserving his people, and calling his people time and again uh, to greater faithfulness to his word. And tonight I'm going to do something a little different. I'm not going to tr- uh, preach a traditional sermon Instead, what I'd like to do is I'd like to introduce you to a man who I think every Christian really should know about and a series of events that really shape the church in ways that are very visible to this day. And the man I'm thinking about is Martin Luther. Uh, The reference to Martin Luther earlier really had nothing to do with that, but uh, Martin Luther is one of those key figures in history, probably the most important figure between the apostles and the present day. And so I think he's somebody that everybody should really, every Christian should know about. Uh, perhaps some of you came from a Catholic background. Um, I don't, I don't know, but uh, I know I have family members who are still in the Catholic Church, and uh, deceased ones who, who died in the Catholic Church. And understanding Martin Luther helps you understand the Catholic Church, where it's been, where it is today. Before we start talking about Martin Luther, uh, perhaps you're wondering, why did a guy like Martin Luther need to come along? Why did God need to raise up a man like Martin Luther? And what did he do that that so shaped the church? What what was the church like before he came along? And and how did he shape the church? So what was the church like before the Protestant Reformation, which basically took place in the early 1500s? Well, during most of the Middle Ages, uh, the vast majority of people in Europe attended church but were completely unfamiliar with the Bible both the people in the pews and the priests who stood up front. Yes, the priests would stand up week by week and they would read off homilies. They would perhaps read a little bit from the scriptures. They would pray prayers. But many of them really had little interaction with the scriptures themselves, really did not know the content of the Bible. When people think about the Middle Ages, they often think of uh, picturesque things, things like stone castles and knights in shining armor, beautiful princesses, things of that nature. Perhaps if you read too much fiction, you think of uh, dragons and all kinds of uh, really exciting stuff. Well, the truth is, even the stuff about the castles and the the knights and so forth, that's really a very small sliver of what the Middle Ages were about. That's just a very small like corner that's the pixel in the corner of the picture. And a lot more was going on in the Middle Ages than that. And a lot of it really wasn't very pretty. A number of different languages were spoken in Europe throughout the Middle Ages. And it's estimated that during uh, the bulk of the Middle Ages, between the years 500 and 1500, roughly 10% of the population could read the language that they spoke. So the vast majority of the population could not read a Bible, even if they had had one. And that certainly had an impact on the church. 
a Latin translation of the Bible was produced in the late 300s. And that really became the official Bible of the, of the church. That was the Bible that everyone looked to. And that held for well over a thousand years. But what happened was gradually people in Europe couldn't read Latin, just as most of us today can't read Latin. And so people were unable to access the Bible. The one Bible that the church said you could use, people couldn't really understand or read. Even if they heard it read, they didn't understand it. Entire church services took place in Latin. Um, the priest, as I said before, would read off a prayer written down. He'd read that in Latin. Sometimes he did not know Latin, but he would read it, mispronouncing words throughout. Uh, if there happened to be somebody who had a university education in the church, they would have sometimes been amused by their, their own priest as he attempted to read uh, Latin prayers and homilies. So even if, the, if a uh, priest read off uh, Latin scriptures, most people did not benefit from those. Throughout most of the Middle Ages, Bibles were very scarce. Uh, you just simply couldn't get a Bible. The printing press was invented in the 1450s, and so up until that point, uh, really, if you wanted a Bible, you had to pay somebody to hand copy it, and that took somebody about a year. And so that meant that essentially a copy of the scriptures would cost about a year's wages. And so you can see very few people, even if they could read, could afford a Bible. And again, even if people could afford a Bible, those who are wealthy, in some cases, in many cases, even for the wealthy, they really couldn't read those Bibles. Because people and priests were unfamiliar with the content of the Bible, it enabled the church to teach all kinds of things that were really quite unscriptural. And so the church drifted further and further over the centuries away from the pure teaching of the apostles. I won't try to summarize really what happened and, and the steps away from the scriptures, but really as people were unfamiliar with the scriptures, as people in the pews and people behind pulpits became unfamiliar with the scriptures, uh, all kinds of crazy things began to be taught in the churches. Uh, images and relics became basically the Bible and pictures for many people. Uh, you can see this with children's books today. Children who can't read, what do they do? What do those books look like? They have some words that the parents can read, but they're loaded with pictures because those kids who can't read can still look at the pictures and get the gist of the story. Well, unfortunately, it was like that for adults during most of the Middle Ages. And the churches did not look like this. The church buildings were covered with murals and statues and visual depictions of saints and often of Christ on the cross. And even those who could never read the Gospels and read about Christ's death and its significance would see Christ on the cross. And they would see that week by week as they went for Mass. And, uh, and they understood that Jesus had died, but they didn't really understand the significance of that as they were unable to read the Scriptures. Indulgences arose uh, really during the time of the Crusades uh, in order to help rally troops. The Pope said, basically, if you will go on an armed pilgrimage, a crusade to the Holy Lands, you'll get merit. God will look on you with favor. And so young men especially would head off to the Holy Lands and attempt to rid the lands, the, the lands of the Bible, from the Muslims. And obviously, a lot of the population was not able to go on such a trip. You know, uh, it's basically the young men who could go. So if you were a lady... If you were an older man, you really couldn't go on such an armed pilgrimage. And so what, what developed really was you could pay someone to go in your place, and you would still get that merit. 
You pay somebody, you outfit them in armor, perhaps if you're really wealthy, you give them a horse, and you send them off on this, on this crusade to the Holy Land, and you accrue merit. Well, over time, that developed. Obviously, as the Crusades ended, people still wanted to get this merit. And what the church did was it began to say, well, you just give us money, and that will count uh, toward that. You can buy an indulgence, and that will uh, give you merit and help you find favor with God. However, one of the most important uh, developments in the Catholic Church uh, prior to the Reformation was the development of the Mass. Uh, no doubt a number of you have seen the Mass uh, practice on TV or perhaps in, uh, in a church service uh, in the past. And obviously the Mass is a re-sacrificing of the body and blood of Christ on a, day, on a weekly basis, or, or oftentimes more than that. Um, I see a sign near where we live, and they'll talk about Mass being offered three different times during the weekend. And, uh, and the idea is that the more you offer Mass, the more you attend Mass and receive the host, the more merit you receive before God. God looks on you with favor because you've, you've seen the sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ. Many people had forgotten uh, during the Middle Ages or simply had never heard what the writer of Hebrews uh, chapter 10 said when he wrote, Christ was offered for all, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. And that by one sacrifice, he, that is Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being made holy. The scriptures are very clear that Christ's work was perfect. It was complete. The Mass is not needed. Uh, in fact, it's an abomination to re-offer the body of Christ when the scriptures say that the sacrifice of Christ was perfect and complete once for all. At the end of the Middle Ages, most people who regard themselves as Christians, that is, most Europeans, were caught up in a system of trying to please God by earning his favor and praying, through the, uh, praying to the saints, attending Mass regularly, purchasing indulgences, and things of that sort. In short, the church was a mess. It had wandered from the scriptures. And so along came Martin Luther. I mentioned that the printing press was developed in the 1450s. Luther was born a couple of decades after that, just as the printing press really had spread throughout Europe. And the scriptures were starting to become more available to people. Uh, still, a small percentage of the population could actually read the scriptures, but at least the Bibles were out there. They were printed similar in text, similar to what we would see today, even if generally in a different language. So who was Martin Luther, and what did, what did Martin Luther do? He was born in Germany in 1483. If you kind of remember your, your high school history, that's less than 10 years before Christopher Columbus set sail hoping to find India and ultimately landed on the Western Hemisphere. Uh, the day after Luther's birth was St. Martin's Day, a, a holiday within the Catholic Church, and so his parents named him Martin, quite appropriately. Martin's father was a miner, uh, kind of a lower-class man who uh, worked very hard and recognized that his young son was very bright. Uh, Luther, Martin Luther was, was a, a brilliant man. What, whatever else can be said of him, he was a smart young lad, and his father wanted him to study to become a lawyer. He obviously didn't have IRAs and 401ks and things of that nature in those days. And so uh, one of the ways to invest for the future was to send your son off to get a good education. Hopefully if he has a good career, uh, can make good money, that kind of provides for your retirement. And so uh, Martin Luther, wanting to please his father, went off to study at the University of Erfurt and began to study there. Apparently, he kind of personally had mixed emotions about this, whether he really wanted to study 
Allah. He was very introspective and concerned about religion and uh, was apparently interested in a more uh, religious lifestyle. The details of Luther's early life really aren't terribly important for our purposes tonight, uh, but really the story of Luther as it regards the church began on a warm July day in 1505, uh, a day really a lot like we had on Monday uh, with the storm there. While Luther was traveling back to university, he had gone home. He was traveling back and the storm blew up very quickly. He was caught in a downpour and lightning struck very close to him. And in fear, he fe well, he fell down and, and he cried out, St. Anne, please help me and I will become a monk. And uh, kind of a rash vow we might we might look at that as being, uh, but he was good to his word. He, uh, he kept this uh, quickly made vow, and a few days later he knocked on the door of a, a monastery, an Augustinian monastery, and asked the prior to accept him into the order. And so he became a, a Catholic, an Augustinian monk. That monastery uh, probably never had a more zealous monk. If you've read anything about Luther's life, you know he was very concerned about pleasing God. He, he believed that what he did uh, determined whether he would be saved or not. Whether he followed all the, uh, the things laid out by the church. Um, he, he said this once, if a monk, after he had become a Christian years later, after he had discovered um, the scriptures really, he said, if ever a monk could have gotten to heaven by monkery, I would have done it. I was, I was the epitome. I was kind of the, monk, the monk's monk. Um, and so he was very zealous because he believed that his salvation depended on his works, his efforts to please God. Luther would sometimes uh, really wear out his superiors there in the monastery. He would go into the confessional booth and stay there for six to eight hours cataloging his sins. And uh, no doubt as they saw him coming sometimes, they would go, oh no, here comes Luther, the day is shot. Uh, but, I mean, he would go through meals, chapels, uh, all kinds of things, and uh, was very introspective, very concerned about making sure his sins were taken care of before God. In 1510, Luther was sent to Rome by his monastic order, and he looked on this as like the greatest vacation or uh, kind of a pilgrimage to Mecca. This is, this is the opportunity of a lifetime to go to the center of Christianity, uh, where the Pope is located in Rome. And so he went there and he visited the graves of martyrs. He saw just thousands upon thousands of relics. Um, sometimes those relics would be things like a nail from the cross of Christ, allegedly. Um, you know, a bit of the ark, supposedly. Uh, uh, bones from saints. Uh, all kinds of interesting things were, were placed up in churches as a means by which one could go and, and pray before that relic and receive merit uh, from God. And so Luther went, and he experienced many things, but overall his experience was a great disappointment in Rome. And he saw the opulence, the wealth of Rome, the Vatican, and he saw um, really the sinfulness of the priests there. He saw that they really weren't concerned about the Mass. They would practice the Mass. They would say the Mass on a regular basis, but they would go out and they would lead around their, basically their harems uh, around town openly, um, and really were, were ungodly men um, who had set themselves up as representatives of God. And so Luther, uh, rather than being drawn closer to the Catholic Church, really returned from Rome uh, with serious questions about the authority of the Pope 
and the, uh, the accuracy of the church's teachings on many things. Shortly after returning from Rome, um, Luther went back and began to teach in a local university. He taught through the book of Psalms, the book of Romans, the book of Hebrews, the book of Galatians. Uh, not exactly the best books for somebody to be uh, teaching through if they want to be a good Catholic. Certainly the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and the book of Hebrews, for that matter, have a lot to say that uh, contradict the Catholic Church. And yet, uh, that's what Luther began to do. He was advised to study the scriptures. He went to others who were older than him within his monastic order and said, you know, he expressed his doubts about the church and said, you know, what should I do? And, and he received good counsel, basically, to study the scriptures. And so he kind of studied as he taught. And as he taught through the book of Romans, early on, came across a verse in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1.17, it says this, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. As Luther read that, he, he thought, this, I, this is what I want. I want to be the righteous man. I want to be the just man. I want to be the man who knows that he has a good standing before God. And yet here is Paul writing and saying that this is by faith. He doesn't say it's by making pilgrimages. He doesn't say it's by praying to Mary or, or attending Mass. He says it's by faith that the righteous man is justified by faith. And apparently at this time Luther was converted um, and came to know God uh, through Christ, not through his own works, not through his efforts, uh, but by trusting in the work of Christ. About the time of Luther's conversion, Pope Leo X uh, embarked on a great building project in Rome. If any of you have ever been to Rome, uh, you've probably seen St. Uh, Peter's Basilica, a huge structure. It's actually the largest single church building uh, in the world today. houses over 60,000 people uh, can, can get inside of this building. And uh, it took over 100 years to uh, complete this building, but about the time of Luther's conversion, it was just being begun. And uh, the Pope realized this was going to take a massive am amount of funds in order to, uh, to complete this building. And so he issued a new indulgence and uh, began offering to people, if you will, if you will give to the St. Peter's uh, indulgence fund, you will have forgiveness of your sins. And you can buy these even for your deceased relatives. Your relatives who are in purgatory, well, if you will just buy these indulgences, uh, if you will give us your money and help fund a good work here in Rome, um, these people, will, your relatives, will get out of purgatory faster. And one of the most effective salesmen of indulgences was a Dominican monk, uh, monk by the name of uh, Johann Tetzel. Uh, Tetzel's known for a number of his rather catchy sayings. Uh, he traveled around Europe really preaching and selling indulgences. And he'd come into town with a band and a, really a large entourage and a great big chest that he hoped to fill. And these certificates that he would hand out if you would just would give money to the uh, St. Peter's Basilica Fund. Here's a, a sample from one of his sermons. gives you an idea of what people were being taught at this point uh, by those who are supposedly representatives of the Pope and ultimately of Christ. He said this, you should know that all who confess and in penance put alms into the coffer will obtain complete remission of all their sins. Why are you standing there? Run for the salvation of your souls. Don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents and others who say, Have mercy upon me, have mercy upon me, because we are in severe punishment and pain. From this, you could redeem us with a small alms, and yet you do not want to do so. 
Open your ears, as the father says to the son and the mother to the daughter. We have created you, fed you, clothed you, cared for you, and left you our temporal goods. Why then are you so cruel and harsh that you do not want to save us, though it only takes so little? You let us live in flames so that we only come slowly to the promised glory. And said other things of that nature, things really uh, blasphemous. You can redeem your relatives from purgatory just by giving money. Has nothing to do with really the work of Christ. It's it's what you do, what you give to the church. And this is where the church had descended. During the spring of 1517, Tetzel came to some villages near where Luther lived. He actually wasn't allowed into Wittenberg, where Luther lived at this point. Uh, but he was in nearby villages, and he preached sermons just like this. And many of Luther's parishioners, he was pastoring as well as teaching at a university at this point. Uh, many of his parishioners went and heard Tetzel and came back with their certificates in hand. And you can actually find these certificates on the internet. You can find certificates of indulgence from the 1500s. Uh, you can see the actual images, though uh, hard to read. It's all in Latin and uh, old type. But uh, you can see what these people would have come back with. And so Luther heard these things and, and was greatly troubled. People are selling uh, favor with God. And later that year, in, on October the 31st, 1517, Luther had drawn up a list of 95 theses, basically short statements, uh, largely about indulgences and the authority of the Pope. And he went to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg and nailed this to the, the door outside. Um, that was not such a revolutionary thing to do in their day. If you did that here, probably Pastor Elwert would not appreciate you putting nails in the door. But in his day, that was essentially like a bulletin board. And it was a place where people would post announcements. Uh, this universe, the university was very closely connected to the church. And so Luther was really, he put these out in Latin, which most people couldn't read. And he was really proposing an academic debate uh, about indulgences. He wasn't looking to start a revolution, to separate from the church, to do anything all that uh, amazing, he simply wanted to debate the efficacy of indulgences. Well, uh, without Luther's intention, uh, without Luther intending it, someone copied down those theses, translated them into German, and by means of the printing press that was now spread throughout Europe, he sent copies of the 95 theses to universities, to churches, to uh, various people throughout Europe, and the ideas spread. All all of a sudden, overnight, Luther really became a household name among those who could read. This really set off a firestorm. Uh, Luther didn't exactly get the debate he was looking for. He was looking for a simple academic debate in his local university. And instead, he ended up getting called before church authorities and being questioned uh, by many. And ultimately, he was excommunicated from the church. He was given opportunity to take back his statements on a number of occasions and ultimately he burned the papal bull of excommunication and, and was removed from the church. Luther also had to appear, uh, appear before various imperial uh, meetings, uh, various political figures. And uh, during the last of these meetings, the so-called Diet of Worms in 1521, Luther was ordered to recant everything he had written. And he was shown a pile of his books on a table, and he looked at those, and sure enough, they were his books. And he was told, you need to recant everything you've written in these books. And he hemmed and he hawed and he said, well, I've, I've written a lot of things in these books. A lot of things that everyone in this room would agree with. Devotional things, um, things about Christ and, and uh, the Trinity, for instance. Things that we agree on. And so he hemmed and hawed and tried to avoid giving a, 
an answer. And they finally came down and said, you, you must recant. Will you recant or not? And Luther asked for another day in which to consider uh, how he would respond to this, this demand, knowing that if he would not uh, comply, that basically his life was forfeit, that he was, he was opposing uh, the emperor uh, of the Holy Roman Empire at this point, and really uh, his life was, was hanging in the balance. The next day, uh, Luther appeared before the, the group of uh, majesties, the uh, various uh, magistrates uh, that were gathered together, and this is how he, uh, how he concluded his statement. He said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the Scriptures I have often quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. And so Luther said, Unless you can show me from the Scriptures or simple reason... Uh, things that we all agree on. Um, I will not recant what I've written. And at the end of this diet, he was declared an outlaw and basically one worthy of death uh, throughout the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, somewhat surprisingly, uh, the Emperor Charles had granted Luther safe conduct to Worms and safe conduct back home. And he um, held firm to his promise. He allowed Luther to leave safely. And so Luther was allowed to head back to Wittenberg. As he was traveling through one of the large forests of Europe, uh, forests, there were still forests in Europe in those days. Uh, they were much larger and more plentiful. He was traveling with a group of men on horses, and they were surrounded quite suddenly by a group of soldiers with crossbows and other weapons. And they uh, demanded to take who was Martin Luther, uh, which one of these writers is Martin Luther, and after a little bit of a scuffle and shouting and so forth, they took Luther away, and his companions assumed Luther was being taken to his death. Uh, word spread throughout Europe, Luther's been kidnapped, Luther's been taken to be executed, and, and people assumed, including people who are very happy to hear this, uh, people assumed that Luther was dead. In reality, what had happened was the elector, uh, the uh, man who was in charge of the particular province where Luther lived, had chosen to have Luther kidnapped uh, for his own safety and for the sake of deniability. He didn't really want to protect Luther openly, uh, be seen opposing the emperor, but if he could take Luther away and hide him away for a while, he saw it as a way to protect Luther, allow him to have time to read and write and, and uh, translate the scriptures. And so he had Luther taken to Wartburg Castle, and Luther stayed there for about a year. Interestingly, almost no one in the castle knew who Luther was during this time. He grew a beard and, and let his hair grow. He had had kind of a, uh, a tonsure haircut, uh, which a monk wore at that point, uh, which was bald in the middle. Some of us have this kind of naturally, uh, but had hair around the edges. He let his hair grow and, and apparently wore a hat or something until it had grown enough. Anyway, he went by the name Sir George, and everyone assumed he was a knight as he lived in this castle. And he... Uh, he, change of diet and a number of things. He was really very sick while he lived in this castle. Uh, castles may look pretty, but um, my understanding is they're really quite cold and damp and uh, probably not the, the nicest of places to live in some ways. And so Luther was really quite sick and uh, often faced temptations during this time. But this was also the most profitable period in his life. Roughly 10 to 11 months he spent there uh, translating the scriptures. He translated the New Testament into German in about 11 weeks, which um, 
is just a phenomenal feat. Uh, people take much longer, than, teams take much longer than that uh, in the present day uh, to translate the scriptures into English. Um, anyway, he, he wrote a number of different books, and these things began to appear under the name of Martin Luther. And all of a sudden, people who thought Luther had been dead for months began to realize, no, he's very much alive. This is Luther. If, uh, if I were to read off much of what Luther um, had wrote, you would recognize a very distinctive style. He's, he is not a boring man to read. He's very fiery and uh, really lets you know what he thinks. And so uh, people realized this was the real Luther. Luther was out there writing. And the scriptures began to spread throughout Europe. Those who could read German, uh, in some cases, had access to the New Testament for the very first time. And Reformation ideas began to take hold in Europe. So Luther stayed there for almost a year and eventually decided to leave to leave the castle and return to Wittenberg and begin to lead the Reformation in person. Through a number of different political things, uh, Luther really was safe. Uh, he was technically an outlaw, but really various political leaders who might have wanted to go after him were tied up with other things, largely Muslims on the eastern edge of the empire. Uh, they threatened um, the empire. The emperor did not want to create a real controversy when Luther had many supporters within the empire, many people that were high up. And so Luther was allowed to, though technically an empire, uh, lived out his days safely. Another two decades, really, he lived. He wrote many uh, hymns. Uh, probably the one that's most uh, well-known is A Mighty Fortress is Our God. No doubt you've sung that here many times. He wrote a number of catechisms, a means by which to teach children and, and new converts about the basics of the faith. He also wrote a lot of books, uh, really hundreds of books and pamphlets, uh, and had his sermons published and many other things. Uh, in, all in total, more than 500 different works. At the seminary, I, I also work in the library part-time, and we have an English edition of most of Luther's works. We don't have them all, but most of them, and it's 54 volumes. takes up a couple of shelves uh, in the library. He wrote quite a bit and lived out his days really quite peacefully. Eventually married a former nun, uh, who was really quite a spitfire. Uh, they were quite an interesting match, had a number of children, and then he eventually died peacefully in his bed. Uh, later, a, a Puritan in America said um, that one of the great miracles of history is that Luther died peacefully in his dead when he was hated by so many. And so Luther, uh, a man who was used greatly by God, died in 1546. So why have I told you this uh, kind of extended story about Luther this evening? Why have I been talking about this man? Why is Martin Luther important to us today? Is he really relevant? Well, I think uh, one of the important things about Luther that we need to understand is uh, Luther helps us understand ourselves uh, much better and the church today. We need to be reminded, and Luther reminds us, of the importance of uh, holding up the scriptures in the church. Luther reminds us of the dangers of a, a church that is ultimately disconnected from the scriptures. In his day, uh, people did not have Bibles in their homes. Probably in your home you have half dozen, dozen copies of the scriptures bound nicely in leather, whatever, uh, gold, gold gilded edges, uh, very pretty. Uh, in Luther's day, most people didn't have that. Most people called themselves Christians. And because of that, they were able to get away from what the scriptures actually teach. 
and begin and they believed things that were superstitions, were traditions taught by men, but were not actually what the Bible says, were not what Jesus or the apostles said about the church. And so Luther reminds us of the danger of a church, a Christianity that is disconnected from the scriptures. Uh, we have easy access. Do we make good use of the scriptures? I know you hear good preaching from this pulpit many times. I'm doing something a little different tonight, but I know that on a week-by-week -week basis that uh, Pastor Elwood preaches through the scriptures very systematically. I uh, see that he's planned things out well in advance, and, and that is wonderful. And so I know that you're hearing the scriptures, but do you study the scriptures, and do you, do you see them as the guiding uh, principle in your life? We also need to be reminded that all our best efforts to please God can never save us. Our standing before God is based solely on the work of Christ. You know, it's very easy for us. Um, we do recognize that uh, we are saved by the work of Christ, but often we think that ultimately we please God really by what we do. God is either happy with us or angry with us based on what we do. We're either uh, okay with God because we've, we've had our devotions today or we have jumped through such and so forth hoops. We give regularly perhaps to the church, and these are, are good things to do. But ultimately, our standing before God is not connected to what we do. It is connected only to the work of Christ, which is perfect. If our standing before God were dependent on what we do, we would all be headed not just to a place like purgatory. We would be heading to hell for eternity. We would not just accrue to ourselves thousands of years worth of punishment. We would deserve the righteous judgment of God forever. Now, our standing before God in no way is dependent on the things that we do. We should obey the scriptures. I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying uh, what we do is unimportant, but as far as our standing before God is concerned, that is based solely on the work of Christ, and, and Luther calls us back to that. Um, Luther called the people in his day back to that, and as we look back at Luther, we again are reminded of the need to trust in Christ and Christ alone. We've just come through a time when, as Americans, we celebrate our freedoms. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, with the 4th of July and so forth, um, Americans get together, we celebrate our freedoms, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of religion. And while the church is not a place to really celebrate the fact that we're Americans so much, um, it, we, as believers, we really should be very grateful for the fact that we enjoy freedoms which the vast majority of the church never enjoyed. In the last 2,000 years, the vast majority of people who called themselves Christians lived in places where they could not worship according to what they believed the Bible taught. They had to worship according to what the prince, the king, whatever believed. Uh, there was a statement that the religion of the prince is the religion of his people. And that really held true up until the Protestant Reformation. Even today, it's true, uh, just heard from a man last night actually, who visits people around the world who worship sometimes in the woods uh, because they are unable to uh, worship in the, under the government that they, they live under. They can't worship freely. And so there are still many people, many Christians around the world today who cannot worship freely, cannot gather like this, certainly not in a comfortable uh, building where they're safe to worship God. And so we should be very thankful. Luther, and uh, really looking back at much of church history, reminds us that we should be very thankful, not just for living in a day where we have electricity and 
and all the air conditioning. I'm, I'm thankful for air conditioning, but uh, much more important than that, we live in a day where we can worship God according to the Scriptures. Luther also reminds us that God uses imperfect people. I didn't uh, emphasize tonight the fact that Luther made a number of uh, really grievous mistakes at various points in his life. He was a man of clay feet, a man who uh, often spoke too quickly and became impatient with people, a man who could be a bit crotchety in his older age and and would really uh, be overly critical with his opponents. And yet, Luther was a man that God used in great and wonderful ways. And that should encourage us. We all know we have faults. We, We sin more than we would like to admit. And yet, God uses people people who have clay feet, people who sin, God uses them to do, to work out his will, to do what he wants done in this world. And so if you des- I hope you decide to read more about Luther on your own. I hope you are somewhat, your interest is piqued in, in, in the study of church history, in the life of Luther. I hope that you will do some of that, uh, looking into that on your own. Um, but you'll discover Luther is a man who uh, continued to practice infant baptism and do many other things that we would look back on as as unbiblical and yet he was used by God um, I hope tonight that you've been encouraged as, as we looked at a man who was imperfect a man, but a man who called people to return to the scriptures I hope you've been encouraged with the idea that, that we need to hold the scriptures up as the sole authority uh, for our Christian lives for all of life And I hope that you've been encouraged to look at what has happened between the apostles and the present day. God has been at work in his world. Um, This church was established in 1939, but God has done, did great things to to preserve his word and to bring about the establishment of this church some 70 years ago. And there are many interesting stories that you could look, look up and read and people you could learn from in the past. Thank you for your good attention.